Inundated with personal idiosyncrasies, Don Drummond was an unrecognized savant who grew up to become one of Jamaica's most celebrated innovators. Though his legacy as a musical innovator is tainted by his convicted crime of passion, he is without a doubt one of the greatest graces that have ever bestowed Jamaican music. Born Donald Willis Drummond on March 12, 1934, at the Victoria Jubilee Hospital in today's downtown Kingston to Doris Rowe and Uriah Drummond, his parents were subsistent workers who both resided in rural Westmoreland. However, Drummond's father would disappear on news of his conception and the fear of the expected judgment from a small-town rural community led to his 19-year-old mother's exodus to Kingston. The young mother and child eventually moved to 26 Potter's Row, a shantytown community close to Raytown in walking distance from Kingston's Eastern Harbour shoreline. A community of subsistent workers and labourers, the children of Potter's Row had little parental supervision. Don would test his mother's patience and that of the local resident magistrate enough to have himself admitted to the Alpha Boys School, an institution created in the late 1900s by brainchild Justina Jesse Ripple, later known as Sister Mary Peter Claver. Though regarded by external historians as a truant school, the disciplinary principles of Alpha met the strict Jamaican guidelines of the era, which many single-parent homes did not have the luxury time nor patience to institute. Alpha provided children with parental guidance, brotherhood, and life skills across a wide range of vocations including military and music, which had become an integral part of the institution's educational program by the turn of the century. The music program, which started in 1908, became the heartbeat of Sister Ignatius, lovingly referred to as Sister Iggy or Iggy Love. A petite member of the Alpha Girls School, she joined the teaching fold at Alpha Boys Academy in 1939 and became a dynamic presence among the wayward but talented brother boys at the Alpha Boys School. It was Iggy Love who would become the biggest influence on the life of young Don Drummond after his entry to Alpha in 1943. Sister Iggy would recognize his savant talent, though he tried to stray from her amiable but stern guidance, her interactive approach to shepherding the young talents among her flock always won them over. She would unwittingly mentor and nurture some of the most innovative pioneers of Jamaican music. From the sax jazz genius Bertie King to Leslie Thompson, the first black conductor of the London Symphonic Orchestra, before becoming the providence behind the ska sound with at least half of the legendary scatterlikes coming from the Alpha Boys' Nest. Iggy would swing her sister act for the next four decades incubating Leroy Smack, drummer Horseman Wallace and King Yellowman. Yes, little but Talawa, Sister Iggy is a regular legend in her own right and one day we will tell her story in its fullness.
But let's get back to Dan Drummond. Though Dan was slow to learn other trades, he showed a natural tenacity for music. He was not without his schizophrenic moments. However, as it is alleged, he delivered a serious head injury to a fellow student, Calvin Pattison, after being taunted consistently for several days. Don would start timidly on the trumpet before moving to the trombone, which he mastered quickly, achieving a level 5 trombonist certification from the Royal School of Music in 1950. Don would skip graduation to join Eric Dean's all-star band, starting at the Elite Colony Club and later the Bournesmouth Beach Club, both popular entertainment spots scattered along Kingston's waterfront. Don would stay close to his mother, moving with her to two adjacent rooms in Love Lane, a quick walk from Doris Darling's liquor shop, the future home of Cox and Dodd's downbeat sound system. <laughs> tenure with Eric Dean's all-star would take Don across the Caribbean and by the early 50s Don Drummond would stand out as a master trombonist. Dean's girlfriend however started to show a visible infatuation to Drummond and soon Eric Dean glutted by jealous spurned Don Drummond from the band. Don Drummond however would go on to break out his own band the Don Drummond Four with the guitarist Janet Enright, pianist Baba Mota, with Roland Alfonso and Bobby Gaynor alternating on sax from time to time. The band would back legendary Afro-American jazz songstress Sarah Vaughan in 1952 at the Glass Bucket Club in Halfway Tree, and she commented on stage that Don was one of the best trombones she had ever encountered. Don would take the star's comment in stride and use it as his bearing standard, driving his inspiration to become one of the world's best. 1953 would mark a very interesting moment in Jamaican music history. With the introduction of the island's radio diffusion network, later known as RJR, local content became a pivotal marketing point as RJR's little brown boxes were later rented to homes who could expend the 10 shillings required monthly. Don Drummond's performance with RJR's 21-piece on-air band would set him apart from the pack and by the mid-50s, the Don Drummond Four would become the Don Drummond's All-Star, a formidable band in the Blue Note era of Jamaican music. However, Don Drummond started showing signs of fractures in his rationale. He had developed an uncanny habit to wear multiple watches on his wrists and ankles, and his unrealistic appearance fee demands eventually led to the breakup of the Don Drummond All-Stars. By the summer of 56, Don Drummond was drifting solo, but still maintained a strong presence as a featured band act, performing with a flurry of bands until he disappeared in the spring of the following year. You see, 
Don's erratic behavior became more visible, but like many others in Jamaica's music industry who suffered the same fate of mental illness, his genius caused many to ignore the erratic call signs of a troubled mind. And they were telling signs. His habit of eating dirt and red clay, sometimes mixed with water or cold Ovaltine, hinted at his geophagic behavior, a symptom closely associated with schizophrenia. Though no actual records exist of his stay, collaborative notes show that he was visited by Alpha schoolmate Roy Sterling shortly after his first admission to Kingston's Bellevue Sanitarium in 1957. He would return to the scene a few months later to cut a dub plate for Coxon's downbeat sound, 1957's On the Beach with singer Owen Gray. So feel it on the beach on Sunday morning Birds and cocks sing the down the evening At his warning on the beach Come on now on the beach I was dancing to the music Also cocks and the down beats on the beach While I was dancing to tunes Start to make my date The girl said listen to me daddy it's getting too late on the beach Come on down on the beach I was dancing to the music of some cocks and the down beats on the beach Yeah! A few weeks after the release of the 78 RPM single, Don Drummond voluntarily walked into the Bellevue Sanitarium where he stayed for another extended period. He would make a strong return to the scene with a seminal dub plate cut. The man is back for Cox and Dodd's downbeat sound. disappeared once again. Sometime in October of 57, Don Drummond in an absent-minded drift stepped off a curve and stumbled into the pathway of an oncoming motor car, suffering enough injuries to pin him down to a hospital bed for three weeks. On his return to his home on Love Lane after his release from hospital, Don returned to find his small room raided and ransacked, leaving him only with a few discarded items and the unwashed clothes on his back. His trips to Bellevue would become a routine in his life, and the older he got, the more easily triggered he became. 
one of his most public psychotic episodes on record occurred at a Kingston jazz club after Don was caught reading an illustrated book on jazz greats lingering in the lobby. Don Drummond snapped. His omission from the book of jazz greats triggered a psychotic episode that could have only been settled by his dear friend and fellow musician Winston Smith who saved the day. Days after the incident, however, Don Wood, under coaxing from Smith, admit himself to Bellevue for treatment once again. By the dawn of the 60s, Don Drummond had been introduced to Rastafarianism and became a devout pupil of the order. A marginal outcast for most of his life, he had found a higher level of brotherhood among the brethren of the new faith and soon found peace of mind for the first time in a long while. Friday groundation sessions in Warwick are killed with the fellow brothers of the faith, the likes of Baba Brooks. Alpha schoolmate Count Ozzy became a regular occurrence for the eccentric Drummond who would meet the sultry and equally troubled Anita Mafood, the woman conveniently omitted from Jamaican music history as the first queen of the dancehall. rebellious middle-class outcast whose reputation as a rumba dancer made Anita one of the most in-demand entertainers of the era. Her fascination and empathetic curiosity of Jamaica's black culture led to her close association with the foundation Rastafarians of that era who, despite her social intricacies, treated her with unfeathered respect. Unbeknown to many, it was this same bohemian woman who would put Rastafarian-inspired music on the map. Now let's rewind the timeline to find out how that started. It was the late 1950s and the Virgin Opportunity Knox was the rising stars of the times, setting the stage where stars were made and the island's most talented entertainers were on show. Anita Mafood was at the height of her popularity and Virjan approached the Roomba Queen to be the main feature of his event. Her rider demands, including the backing of her performance by Count Ozzy's African troupe, which Virjan's rejected with contempt. Rastafarians on a Virjan show? Unheard of! But Anita never backed down and rejected the appearance unless her sole demand was met. Virjan, however, returned to the negotiating table with Mafood and relented to her demand. Virjan had his star attraction, but in Warwicka Hill that Friday, the outcast plotted their mainstream break with Anita Mafood as the mastermind of the blueprint. 
Four rehearsals and one week later, the Roomba Queen entered the Virgin stage, mesmerizing the packed audience with her infamous waistline. But it was Count Ozzy who the Queen had planned to be the show stealer. With her waist moving to the hypnotic drum ensemble, it was not long before the crowd demanded Virgin bring up the house lights he had purposely dimmed on the band. The crowd on seeing the natty dreads from Warwick Hill went wild and on that night, at that moment, Rasta became a formidable presence in the island's evolving music echo chamber. Now let's fast forward to the timeline. planets passing in orbit, Don and Anita would make a close encounter in 1955 at the Glass Bucket Jazz Club, but would collide in love sometime in the early 60s in Warwicka Hills where both had found solitude for their troubled souls. Inseparable at the heart, the tumultuous love affair was as toxic as it was intoxicating and as human as it was unearthly to bystanders and neighbors in the small tenement yard at 9 Rusden Road in the community of Rockford, nestled at the foot of Warwicka Hills. Around the same time, Don and Anita met as a ragtag collective of talented Alpha alumni members would form a band, a studio band, that would become the musical backdrop of the emerging soundscape of the 60s and by the time Tommy McCook returned to Jamaica in 1962 and Doreen Schaefer joined the crew as the lead vocalist, the Scatterlights had moved the shuffle to ska and catalyzed the next evolutionary musical wave of Jamaican music. of stereo sound and the popularity of the 45 vinyl, Jamaican music was a bona fide export product by the dawn of the 60s, with the likes of Cluett Johnson's Blues Blasters, Lassell Perkins and Clancy Eccles among the innovators leading the new musical charge on Cox and Dodd's first imprint, the All-Stars label. By the time Don Drummond cut his now infamous Further East solo cut featuring the Scatterlights in 1963, Don had composed and recorded close to 250 singles, an amazing feat considering the technology of the times. 
Don Drummond even added his signature razzle to Bob Marley's first solo track, One Cup of Coffee, which Bob recorded nervously under the name Bobby Martell for Leslie Kong's Beverly Records in A seemingly contextual reflection of Don Drummond's fragmented mind, the scatterlights of the nine band members anecdotally revolved like satellites around Don Cosmic's musical gravity. The haunting simplicity of Don Drummond's infectious compositions added a unique flair to the subtle repetitiousness of scatterlights hypnotic trademark soundscape. However, half of the band turned a blind eye to Don's eccentricities and the other half saw it as the sole excuse for his increasingly erratic and openly abusive behavior towards the love of his life and Nita Mafood. They were in love, many scoffed with little attention. Even among their intertwined circle of friends, they seemed to be a madly odd couple. Anita, the Venturian daughter, as she referred to herself, was attracted to the tempted silence of the musical bedlamite Don Cosmic Drummond, who himself was drawn to her rebellious, animated character. When Anita Mafood recorded the seminal single Woman A Come in 1963, backed by the Scatterlites, she declared herself Don Cosmic's Ayata, the Venturian daughter coming to save her Unga Malunga man. Ayata, your daughter from Venturian border, a come. abstract of Afro-cosmology is one of the earliest recordings of a lead female singer canvassed by the burgeoning Rastafarian soundscape. 1964 was another game-changing year. 
Millie Small had become a pop sensation, the Beatles had invaded America, space flight was a reality and the seeds of the civil rights movement was finding roots among the dispatched but ruminating minorities entrenched in Euro-centivized Commonwealth communities scattered across the globe. It was also the literal climax of the original Scatterlight's career. The omission of the Scatterlights from Jamaica's 1964 World Fair contingency drew the ire of the Scatterlights and the Beat Street music community. They had little regard for Lee, the uptown musician who had attempted to commercialize the soundscape of the grassroots people. With Doreen Schaefer on lead vocals, the Scatterlights would drop the album Ska Authentic, which was a direct challenge to the Byron Lee dilution of Ska, which was used to represent the island's music at the 1964 World's Fair. That year, the Scatterlights recorded with such a fervency that by the time Byron and the Jamaican contingency returned from the World Fair in 1964, the Scatterlights was a bona fide household name. But with every leap the Scatterlights made towards stardom, it seemed Don Drummond's unpredictable moments of melancholy would set them back. By this time, Don had stopped eating any sort of hot food of any kind of any nature and ate only fruits which he quenched with a mixture of water, clay, dirt, rusty nails, fruit skins with an occasional spoonful of Ovaltine drink mix. His fascination with a knife gifted to him by Anita soon became an intimidating presence in Don's approach to settling creative differences among himself and bandmates. Don would just back out his butterfly knife and declare who wants to leave, leave, who wants to play, stay. Nobody ever attempted to leave. Everybody simply orbited Don Cosmic as he wobbled dangerously on the axis of his sanity. Drummond was missing more shows, more rehearsals, and Anita had returned to her residency at her old haunt, the Club Havana, and that was not going down well with Don. New Year's Eve night of 1964, the Scatterlight had been booked at a club in the nearby Harborview area, and Anita had a booked appearance at the Bournemouth Bleach Club just a short distance from their home in Rockford. Don had presumably fallen asleep before Anita left for her gig that night. Scatterlight's band leader Tommy McCook arrived at Don's home to pick him up for the event, but found Don asleep and left him undisturbed. He later returned after the band's first set and after a light attempt to wake Don, left him once again for the Scatterlight's final set. Sometime after 4 a.m. on January the 1st, 1965, Anita returned home, changed for bed, and laid down to sleep. Shortly after, neighbors heard a familiar shuffle and Anita bawling out, Murder! 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 Something she did in play and in fight with Don, but it was the blood-curdling chill of her final pleas for help. Murder! Murder! As Don stabbed her four times in her left breast, leaving his favorite knife lodged in her chest, Don Drummond fled the scene to the nearby Rockford police station, reporting a suicide on Rosden Road. 
he was taken into custody just after dawn on the first day of 1965 and by the time Don Drummond appeared in court a year later, the scatolite had split into two bands. Drawn, unkept and extremely reserved, it seemed Don had resolved his crime in his own cosmic space and the regards of the here and now seemed to not matter at this moment. Though he had a strong defense team led by Tony Spaulding and P.J. Patterson, the collaborative legal brilliance of these two minds could not save the tormented genius of Don Drummond nor convince judge or jury that his talent and national contribution outweighed his murderous insanity. Don Cosmic Drummond was found guilty and committed indefinitely to the maximum security ward of the Bellevue Sanatorium in 1966. Three years later, on the Saturday afternoon of May 3, 1969, rumors started circulating that Don Drummond had died in custody. Though many conspiracies and allegations try to rationalize his cause of death, one can only assume that his eccentric dietary habits were never catered to, and this would have led to violent outbursts, contentious moments, and physical confrontations with hospital staff that could have led to his death. But his death is not without uncertainty. His death certificate listed the day of death as May 6th, three days later. It listed his death as a suicide, though to this day no final autopsy report stating a definitive cause of death was ever submitted. The melodrama continued 11 days later at his funeral service on North Street when his friend and drummer Hugh Malcolm interrupted the funeral service stating that Don could not be buried until his autopsy report be made public. Malcolm in his rant revealed that Don died during an alleged confrontation with four wardens at the institution and it was being covered up by the Jamaican government and the Bellevue Hospital Administration. A commotion would ensue. But the fast action of the attending funeral home would whisk the casket away to safety, abruptly ending the memorial service for the star. A few days later, Don Drummond would be buried quickly and quietly without service on the 18th of May 1969 in an unmarked grave registered as A436 in Kingston's Maypen Cemetery. A melancholic end to one of Jamaica's greatest musical composers, his catalogue of over 300 musical works has continued to inspire the global soundscape and absorbed his place among the pantheons of black trombonists. The daunting influence of Don Drummond's musical mastery will always be blurred by his inherent madness that maybe, just maybe, helped to weave the musical tapestry that continues to whisper his name across the annals of time as a legend, as a legend of reggae. Of reggae. Thank you.